have you ever met someone who just seems like they were born in the wrong century? Or maybe you visited some kind of town and it just felt like you stepped back in time. You know, my favorite baseball team is the New York Yankees, and they have a player on their team right now. His name's Matt Carpenter. And really, you watch him play, and it looks like he should be playing in 1922 instead of 2022. He's got this real old-school mustache. He didn't wear any batting gloves. He just wipes some dirt on his hand, steps to the plate, and hits the ball. I mean, if you matched him up with any player back in the day, he'd fit right in. And, you know, there are thoughts, too, aren't there, that almost seem like old school, outdated, or just, just from, like, centuries ago. And during our series, What Were You Thinking? Well, this morning, we're kind of approaching a doctrine that's kind of like that. We're going to be looking at the doctrines of justification and adoption. And justification especially seems like, well, isn't that settled? Haven't we said what all there is to say about that? And to a degree, that's true. The doctrine of justification, it was really formalized uh, during the time of the Reformation because the Protestants came up against the Catholic Church, and this was the primary issue of the day. And the Protestants said, hey, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And this was revolutionary because the Catholic Church taught something completely different. They taught that you were uh, saved by faith plus a means of grace. That is, you were saved by faith plus the sacraments. You were saved by faith plus relics. You were saved by faith plus good works. It was always faith plus. And so the reformers come along and say, no, no, no. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone alone. And this is just what Paul says in Galatians 2.16 when he wrote, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Justification is this legal declaration by God. It is God acting as judge and declaring that a person is righteous in his sight because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that was accomplished on their behalf. And then we who are justified, well, we're adopted by God. That's John 1, 12, where, where it says, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's interesting, you know, because the world likes to tell us that we're all God's children. But that's not exactly true, according to Scripture. According to Scripture, it is only those who have been justified that have been adopted into God's family and are now the family of God. In fact, those of us who have not been justified... Well, Paul, he says something completely different in Ephesians 2, 3. He says that we're actually children of wrath, not children of God, but children of wrath. So there is justification and adoption. We basically covered it right there. Those are two primary doctrines that we're going to focus on. But 
These doctrines, they are critically important today. Uh, so much is going on, and we're going to focus this message on why these doctrines are so extremely timely and relevant for our culture today. Because I really believe that if you know these doctrines well, that if you rehearse these, and if you recite these, and you just preach these doctrines to yourself, then you'll be much better equipped to speak to our culture and God's redemptive plan for it. Because we are living in a culture consumed with guilt. Uh, Wilfred McClay, he's a professor at Hillsdale College now, he made this observation about our current culture in an article titled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. McClay wrote this, he said, those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox, one whose shape and character have so far largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized, into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West, even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse. And the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. McClay's point was this, that despite all of the secular world's attempts to get rid of guilt from our society, well, it has not been eliminated. It's actually grown. See, there's this idea, it comes from this idea that if you can just get rid of God in culture, then humanity would stop carrying around this feeling of indebtedness to some otherworldly being, and they would stop feeling guilt, that they don't measure up, or they're not good enough, they, they can't do enough things. And so they just can explain away guilt as some sort of subjective moralism, and then we can do away with it. No one would feel guilty anymore. And these ideas, they began in the late 19th century, and uh, progressed through the early 20th century. And in recent years, modern culture has really embraced these ideas altogether in spades. And yet this nagging feeling of we can't do enough and we don't measure up and we're not good enough, it hasn't subsided. If anything, it's been supersized. Just think of how many posts and how many memes and how many status updates that you see where somebody writes, hey, you're awesome. You can do it. Uh, hang in there. Don't be so hard on yourself. Why? Because there's this pervasive feeling throughout culture that we aren't doing enough, that we're not really that awesome, that we're not really good enough. And so we tell ourselves, we tell people all the time, no, hang in there, you can do it, you're awesome. And if you're not really convinced that this guilt is so pervasive, then consider this. Never have we been so connected as a people. I mean, globally, we're super connected. We know things that are happening all around the globe, all the time. The news reports on all these things. And yet, uh, that means it has certain ramifications. It means that we know more than basically any other generation has ever known about what's taking place in the world. We hear about every hurricane, every tornado, every natural disaster, every shooting, all these things, all so much is happening. It all gets reported. And with all that comes almost this constant need to send money. We'll send money to help these victims and send money to help these victims and do a little more. And no matter how much you send, there's this feeling that, well, it's not enough, that I could have sent more, that, that more is still needed. There's also always something more that can be done. And with that comes this lingering feeling of guilt. And if that's not enough, it's the sufferer who is glamorized in our culture. Now, 
in one sense, this is good. I mean, God, he's close to the brokenhearted. And we as believers, we're to weep with those who weep. However, in another sense, the simple fact that someone is suffering makes them the ones who should be idealized. So, you know, take, for example, when the Olympics are on. And we enjoy watching the Olympics at, at my house. I like the sport of it. I just want to see the game. Show me the game and stuff. Well, she likes all the backstory of all the athletes. I mean, she wants to hear their life story and all this. And, well, coverage often obliges, and we hear all the backstory. And you know what you notice with the backstory of almost every single athlete? is some kind of tragedy in their life, some kind of family member who has some kind of terrible disease or something that they've uh, had to overcome. It's, it's always these painful tragedies that this person has had to kind of rise up from. And if you look at even broader culture, that's really what we look to as well, right? I mean, with our politicians, it's almost like a race to the bottom. Who's been, who's over had to come the most in their life and who's, who's been uh, just so impoverished. And they're the ones we look to during arguments. Uh, it's not so much the point of an argument, but if your backstory is one that is marked by difficulty, well, then you should be believed. Uh, so why are we so focused on being victims now? I mean, there's this victim mentality. And I want to be very clear. We're not blaming victims, not at all. We're, we're close to victims. We, we weep with them. We're not denying the reality of real suffering. It's quite the contrary. But the point is this. Because of the guilt we still feel, and yet we're removed from it in a Christian way to deal with that guilt, our society is, that one way the, off, the world offers us to deal with our guilt is to feel this sense of moral release and to recover this moral innocence is to prove that someone else is guilty. That I'm not really responsible that because this person did this, this is why I have suffering the way I'm suffering. So whatever imperfections I may have, well, that can all be excused. Uh, you know, it's not so much that I'm a selfish, sinful person in rebellion to God, but rather I'm one who is truly righteous. It is those people who have inflicted this upon me. See, understand the world has just two categories. You're either the sufferer or you're the sinner. You're either the oppressor or you're the oppressed. The world doesn't know what to do with, uh, with guilt other than to make other people guilty so that we can feel absolved, that we can plead our innocence. I mean, you can boil it all down to this. My issues are ultimately someone else's fault. It's interesting because the Bible and the doctrine of justification especially tells us something entirely different. It tells us that we are both sinners and sufferers. Not equally, and it's not that we all sin and suffer equally, no, not that, but that all of us, to some degree, are sinners and sufferers. But our culture, it fights that on every front. It's all law, and it's no gospel. A generation ago, we lived in a culture of moral relativism. And we talked about that. We heard about that all the time. And the, but the secular edge of the culture, it was, it was pushing at this time for tolerance and per, for permissiveness and for acceptance, for everybody to be able to believe what they want to believe. Can't we just believe this and all get along? Uh, Christians, you believe what you want to believe. We'll believe what we want to believe. And it'll all be good. We can be happy. Just let us believe the way we want. And this moral relativism that all beliefs are created equal. This is decidedly not the culture that we are currently living in. 
No one wants to say to conservative Christians that, hey, it's fine for you to believe what you want to believe, and we'll just go on believing what we want to believe. All beliefs are created equal. That's fine. No, if anything, Christians are saying, can't we just believe what we want to believe? Can't can't we just live how we want to live? We want permission. We want acceptance. We want tolerance to be able to live in this way. See, culture has shifted. And culture that we inhabit today is not this moral relativistic culture. It is a legalistic culture. It's legalistic in its understanding of right and wrong. It is secular legalism. I mean, you think of all the areas in life in which you might face judgment, whereas just a generation ago, no one would have even thought twice about it. I mean, food, for example. One theologian pointed out that a generation ago, Westerners, we had a lot of rules about sex, but not so many rules about food. And now how it's shifted. Oh, you can have sex with whoever, whatever, however you want, whatever floats your boat. That's fine. No one can say anything about that. But food... Well, it's very important that you know where that meat came from. How was it processed? Was it organic? I mean, we, we really want to know these things. Uh, the environment. And I'm not here to adjudicate uh, global warming or climate change or anything like that. But it's clear in society that we are made to feel guilty. We're made to feel this burden on our shoulders of environmental concerns. There's this new layer of guilt that's been added. And so when a hurricane comes, we no longer hear religious prophets saying it's because of some sin. No, we hear secular prophets telling us that it's because you're driving SUVs. You know, and this doesn't even mention all of the isms and phobias that are out there. I mean, you can go through that list. We hear them all the time. And that's not to say that society isn't guilty or our culture has not been guilty of any of those things. Yes, but that's not the point. The point is we are told how bad we are without anyone telling us what we can really do about it. The same culture who does not believe in original sin and total depravity is drowning in statements of universal corruption and moral culpability. We are a people loaded with guilt. And all of this is really a search for justification. Why is Twitter and social media often such nasty places to go to? Because it is people seeking just self-justification. Yeah, you can use these platforms for good, sure, but it is full of people trying to prove just how righteous they are and that any problems they may have, they're always somebody else's fault. And whatever sin they have, well, it isn't nearly as bad as those people's sin over there, how they're so much worse. And because legalistic secular society has declared that certain sins are the unpardonable sins, well, as long as you don't have those, you're, you're okay. But deep down, we know that's not justification. And so we return again and again, and we try to build ourselves up again and again, and we build others up again and again. You're awesome. You can, you can do it. Hang in there. We plead our case over and over, and we point out the wrongs of others because it tries to make us feel better that we aren't so bad. But what happens? The guilt remains. And this is why we need so desperately the doctrines of justification and adoption. We need the doctrines of justification and adoption because we are a culture consumed with guilt. Now, the world does have their salvation plan for all of this. You need to forgive yourself, get right with yourself, or you need to just get right with the universe. The problem with that is how do you know that you're right with yourself? And how do you know that you're right with the universe? See, these ideas, they're impersonal. 
They're cosmic kind of out there and they're subjective. There's, there's no real objective measure to know the answer to this. The doctrine of justification is so much better than anything the world has to offer because it tells us very specifically, very objectively that we all have sinned against God and that all of our sin is ultimately against God. David prayed in Psalm 51:4, against you and against you only have I sinned. Maybe that sounds offensive that all of our sin is ultimately against a holy God and that he has the right to be angry with us over our sin, and that he has the right to execute his wrath against us because of our sin. However, the doctrine of justification, it is personal, it is present, and it is objective. It is long lasting. We're going to look at some of that this, this morning to say that there's a God who's really angry about sin. Uh, maybe that sounds like really bad news. And it is if you don't repent, if you don't have, a, if you're not in right relationship with him. And that's why there's this push for acceptance. For instance, if a family member comes to you and they say, hey, I'm a part of the LGBTQ community. And you say, well, you know, I still love you. I'll always love you. But, you know, I just can't condone those lifestyle choices. Well, today the response is often, well, if you can't condone my lifestyle, then you don't really love me. That is something, but that's not love. And why? Because they need to be reassured that they're okay. This is all Romans 1 and 2, that we have a conscience and we suppress the truth and we need everyone in our circle then to validate us so that that truth can stay suppressed because how else are we going to know that we're really okay? How else are we going to numb that feeling in us that tells us, man, maybe this isn't okay? See, to say that there's a God who is really angry about sin is actually really great news because it tells us where to go to make things right. Justification is personal. It tells us where to go, who to go to. We go to God because our sin is against him. How am I going to make this right? I go to God. And justification is also profoundly merciful. We say that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. This means that we ground our justification not in our works, they have no basis, not, not simply in our humanity. Hey, we're, we're human, so we can be justified. It's not simply that. All that doesn't cut it. It is based fully on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how we're justified. It's, it's not as if we come to God and we present faith and we say, oh, here's my faith. And God says, wow, that faith is so valuable. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your faith and in its place, I'm going to give you righteousness. No, that, that's, that's not like this exchange that's happening. Uh, no, faith, as Paul says, it isn't faith. Faith isn't even of ourselves. No, faith is the instrument by which the work of Christ is credited to our account. And we aren't justified by the quality of our faith. For instance, if there was a chair sitting here, and I just decide to sit down in it, and I don't think twice about it, I just sit down, that's exercising a lot of faith in the chair. Or maybe there's a chair here, and I'm like, I'm not so sure, I'm a little tentative, but I still sit down. It really doesn't matter the quality of my faith. The fact is I sat down in both occurrences. It is the object of my faith, and that's what Paul's talking about. That's the whole purpose. It is about Christ. It's his work. It's not how much faith we can muster, how good our faith is, or if we have more quality of faith, well, then our salvation is more assured, our justification is somehow better. No, it's all the work of Jesus, and that's why 
this doctrine. It is so profoundly merciful because he did it all for us. All we bring to the table is our sin and our open hands and saying, God, you did it for me. And so because of the work of Jesus Christ, by faith, his righteousness is now credited to, to our account. It's not just that, okay, now we're neutral free agents. No, we actually get the righteousness of Christ, him who lived the perfect sinless life. It's all credited to our account. You understand the salvation plan of the world? It is profoundly unmerciful. If you've committed one of these taboo sins that secular legalism says, no, 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 that's evil. You're so evil. There's no real recovery from that. There's not enough self-flagellation that you can do to ever be rid of that. No, you're canceled because of that. Justification. It's also this legal term, and it means that you have been declared righteous, that you have met all of the requirements of God's law. And that's how this, this word is used. We use this way in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.1. It says, if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judge decides between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. So the judge, he decides, innocent, guilty. And then in the New Testament, Romans 8, 38 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The dilemma throughout scripture is actually not how can a good God judge sinners, no, the dilemma throughout scripture is this. How can a holy God acquit sinners? How, how can he do that and remain holy? It, it's not as easy as God just saying, you know what? Mercy. All those sins that you've done, ah, forget about it. No big deal. I'm just going to show mercy. That's it. No, it's, it's not that easy. It's not just, hey, mercy triumphs over judgment. This wins. It's not that easy easy. Why? Because God has to remain consistent in his character. He has to remain holy. He has to remain just. And so mercy triumphs over judgment because in God's mercy, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the satisfaction of his judgment. Justification is how God remains a holy God, how he remains a just God. It's how he remains just and at the same time, merciful. It's how God can be just, even as he's justifying the ungodly. Proverbs 17, 15 says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike, an abomination to the Lord. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is how God can justify the wicked and not become an abomination. This is the argument that Paul makes throughout Romans, that we are justified by an imputed righteousness that is not of ourselves, as opposed to an inherited righteousness or an infused righteousness that is somehow uh, that is found within us because of who we are, humanity, or, or this, this uh, righteousness that we just kind of discover within ourselves. Justification and adoption are enduring. Why? Because they're imputed. They're given. We don't have to search within ourselves and, oh man, I got to keep, I got to keep, I got to keep. No are given by the righteousness of Jesus. So it is this legal standing and it can't be undone. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to us. And then we're adopted into his family. The papers have been signed. It is sealed. The world knows that we need a remedy for guilt and sin. And so what do they say? Oh, blame it on your parents. Blame it on your DNA. Blame it on those people over there. Blame it on someone else. It's someone else is why you have the problems that you have. 
And maybe that makes you feel a little better for a moment, that you can kind of absolve your guilt or, you know, kind of rediscover innocence for a moment. But you realize that's not enduring. It doesn't last. It's not legal. It's not the justification that we need. We need a justification that is legal, that will last, that is enduring. And that is the work of Christ. That is the righteousness of Christ. Because it's not setting aside justice. No, it is the legal satisfaction of it. The doctrines of justification and adoption. They are personal, they are merciful, and they are enduring. We need the doctrines of justification and adoption because the world is discipling you. Understand this, the world is teaching you and they are teaching your children. It doesn't matter. You say, well, you know, my, my children, they're, they're private school, they're, they go to a Christian school, they're homeschooled, they're classical school, maybe somehow they do all three, it doesn't matter. The world is there. They have friends, they have phones, their friends have phones, there's the TV, there's, it's everywhere. The world tells you and the world tells your kids that, hey, you find the God within. You find yourself within. You be free from all these constraints that we've put on ourselves, these constraints of family, the constraints of sex, the constraints of gender. The list goes on. It's so freeing, the world tells you. This is the world story. The Bible, well, the Bible tells us a completely different story. It's how a holy God can dwell with an unholy people. It's a story of banishment out of the Garden of Eden. It's a story of banishment from the earth in the day of Noah. It's a story of banishment from the promised land. And it's also a story of how God can dwell with his people. Dwell with them in the cool of the day in Eden. Dwell with them in the tabernacle. Dwell with them in the temple. And dwell with them through Emmanuel, God, with us. It's a story of promise from Genesis to Revelation. Where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Make no mistake. The world doesn't think they need this. They don't think they need a God, that they need to be his people. But every parent you meet, every cashier at the grocery store, every random person on the internet who's posting in the social media is longing for someone to tell them, you're okay, you're awesome, you've got this. The problem in life is this. Salvation is the need of the hour. It's the need of the hour for our culture. The heart of the message of the cross, it is simple, it is wonderful, it is glorious, it is good news that God justifies the ungodly. And the doctrine, it must shape our ministries. It must shape how we live our life. It must shape the mission of our church. It must shape everything about us. We never stop preaching this. We never stop rehearsing this. We never start, stop reciting this. And it's this message that, no, you're not okay. But God is. God is okay. And he sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to pay for every wrong that you've ever done, every wrong that you've ever, ever thought, every right that you should have done that you decided not to do, that he's, he's covered all that for you and he's credited his perfectness, his righteousness to your account so that you can be okay, that he adopts you into his family and he calls you his own. But you must be justified. And how are you justified? You are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So yes, rehearse this doctrine. Teach this doctrine to your family. Share this doctrine of justification and adoption conversationally with people you interact with. And learn how it pertains to all 
of life share the doctrines of justification and adoption. Be consistent. Share the doctrines of justification and adoption. You know, we hear a term like justification, and it sounds just churchy, maybe old school or antiquated, but the glorious truths of justification and adoption are as relevant today and perhaps even more so than they have ever been. And I know that a message like this, sometimes you can even take it the other way and say, oh man, look how far our culture has, has fallen. You know, back in the good old days, we didn't have this secular legalism. You could believe what you want. It was, it was all good. And now look at it. Look, look, listen, every culture has sin issues. It's not like as Christians, we don't long for the good old days. We long for that glorious future day when God makes all things right. And one of the things that I'm profoundly excited about is that God has handpicked you and he's handpicked me and he's handpicked our kids to be his ambassadors, to be able to speak these truths of justification and adoption to our generation. So I hope you'll do just that. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. That when all we bring to the table is our sin and our guilt and just open hands, God, that you would justify us through the righteous work of your son, Jesus Christ. That you would credit his righteousness to our account when we come to you by your grace alone, through faith alone, in your son alone. And God, it's all to your glory. And God, then you would adopt us into your family just what an incredible thing. God, help us to remind ourselves of this, to teach this to our family, to our friends, to keep rehearsing, keep reciting. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.